0: What's up everyone, this is Lito and you're listening to Crypto Testers, a podcast keeping you informed about all the coolest projects in the crypto space. In this episode, I talk to Nate Hintman and Mark Richardson from Banker. Nate is the head of growth and Mark is a research lead at Banker. Banker is a decentralized exchange on Ethereum and was actually the first to popularize So called automated market makers or AMMs. I've been super impressed with Banker's growth in the last couple of months since they launched a new update to their platform. In this episode, we talked about the rise of decentralized exchanges in general, how AMMs work, and why Uniswap was more successful in the last couple of years over Banker, and how Banker's new version improves on Uniswap and all the other decentralized exchanges. We also talk about future plans of Banker, how it tries to differentiate itself from other decentralized exchanges now and in the future, its plans to launch on layer two, namely on Arbitrum, and how the project wants to attract more trading volume and more trading pairs also. I learned a lot during the episode. I hope you will too and have fun. Hey, guys. Hello, Emmanuel. Thank you for having us on your podcast. It's super good to have you here on the CryptoTest podcast. It's always nice to have a project on that is having a lot of traction because there's just more to talk about, I guess. And you guys are having phenomenal traction. I looked at the data just before the podcast and I saw that the TVL in November was about $50 million dollars And now, just two or three months later, it's at over $1.5 So clearly, something interesting is happening at Banker. But let's do first things first. Let's talk about the origin story of Banker. Because it's actually not a new, shiny 2020 project. It dates back to the now infamous ICO period of 2017. So yeah, let's start with that and then... Go over the Banker of 2021. Who of you two has been at Banker the longest and wants to go over the beginnings?
1: Yeah, sure. I can take this. I've been with the project since late 2017, early 2018. I work on the growth side, and Mark is on the research side of the project. Yeah, so I've been with Banker since then, and just to give a little history on the protocol, it actually. Believe it or not, started at Bancor. The team there are about four founders that have been working together for many years, and actually started uh, building community currency pilots and deploying these currencies in across the world and putting them on the blockchain and really allowing different communities to trade goods and services using a sort of local currency. They were really firm believers in this kind of community currency movement and this long tail of currencies and it sort of led them down the path to discover that it was really hard to exchange illiquid currencies if the exchanges couldn't be listed on an exchange you needed some sort of liquidity to be put on an exchange and if there's no liquidity then you know you can hold the currency but you can't really get out the currency you can't trade it into anything and so the kind of architect of the protocol ayal herzog came up with this concept of an automated market maker and this was the first automated market maker now amms are kind of like it seems everything in defi is built on amms but this was a you know very the, the sort of first amm on ethereum it, they had the pilot in early 2017 and then the live Bancor.network went live with the first amms on ethereum in late 2017, around June 2017, and and has been a pretty wild ride since. I think many of your viewers might know Uniswap, which was based on Bancor's model of AMMs, Automated Market Makers. And Uniswap made some pretty interesting changes to the protocol, basically forked it, and instead of using BNT as the common reserve asset in every one of these market makers, introduced Ethereum, ETH, as the common reserve asset. And that sort of worked out well, as we all know, for a couple years. But there were some sort of fundamental issues that we discovered very early on as the creators of this primitive that really needed to be solved. And we feel like it took us quite a few years of really hacking on this primitive with some of the most Brilliant kind of economists in the world to really figure out the what were the core issues. Get loads of feedback from users, and we can dig into those later. But V two point one, this sort of what what a lot of people have really started to tune into, Bancor again solves these two kind of fundamental issues that have existed in AMMs for the past couple years, and that is one, impermanent loss, and two our sort of key feature is single-sided liquidity. And we can delve into what those mean, but that's the sort of high-level history. And the past few months have been pretty remarkable in terms of Bancor getting back on people's map and the traction has just been exploding ever since. It, It took us like, from 50 million, it took us, I think, probably two or three months to get to 500 in liquidity locked The growth curve has just been exponential. I think we crossed a billion in liquidity lock probably like, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago. And we're already at, I think as of today, 1.6 billion. And so it's just, it's going pretty crazy and, and been an exciting ride.
0: Yeah. Two things that are quite interesting to me. So I didn't know that Banker started kind of with the vision of creating community tokens. If you fast forward to 2021, these are actually quite en vogue again and uh, you know there's a couple of projects that are specialized in the issuance of community tokens like uh, TriRoll or, or Rally but actually on the research there you found something much more interesting to work on namely to create venues where people could trade these tokens, because in order to make community tokens a thing, you also need the infrastructure to to trade them and to guarantee liquidity. So that's how you found the concept or explored the concept of an AMM. And then secondly, that you were actually the first project to deploy an AMM to mainnet and, and not actually Uniswap, like many believe. What would you guys say is the reason why Uniswap was, for the first year's more successful, although they launched second? I mean, you mentioned the fact that they used ETH as a reserve asset. So every pool, every asset trades against ETH on Uniswap and on Banker, it's against BNT, the native governance token. Would you say that was the, the only reason or are they others?
1: Well, I think that is the main reason. There's also the sort of, at the time you have to... Take yourself back to 2017 and 2018. There was a lot of regulatory uncertainty and unclarity. And, you know, they say the first one up the hill takes all the arrows. And there was a lot of ways we wanted to communicate and facilitate access to the project. We really didn't have the clarity on the regulatory side to really communicate that to users and to really expose that functionality. And, you know, in some ways it might have taken just a, you know, someone else to sort of push that along. So I think the regulatory impact was one. But really the bigger reason was, you know, when you want to provide liquidity to a pool in the early stages of Bancor, you needed to do so with the token you wanted to provide liquidity to, let's say LINK and also BNT. So then when Uniswap came along, they replaced that with ETH. So in order to provide liquidity, you provide it in Link and ETH. And ETH is just a more common asset. That people have in their wallet, and so it was just easier for them to provide liquidity. Telling a project, "Oh, just provide some ETH on the other side to fund your pool," is an easier sell than and or to a user than saying, "You know, buy this new token Bancor or BNT and do the liquidity provision." But what we soon discovered is that even with a common reserve asset like ETH, there's still some of those core issues. That when you're providing dual sided liquidity to these sort of Bancor V1 pools or Uniswap V2 or Balancer or really any AMM that's on the market right now, besides Bancor V2.1, you have to take on positions in another token. So if you love your link, well, when you want to provide liquidity to that link pool, you have to either sell some of your link into ETH and take on exposure into eth or you have to use some of your eth. And so lots of token holders, you know, they don't want to put their they don't want to sell part of their stack. They also don't want to put their tokens on the line and risk losing them to impermanent loss. If eth and link in that example diverge in price, which this is crypto and they obviously will, you are going to lose some of your link and potentially lose some of your eth. And that's what's called impermanent loss. Now the bet That most LPs are making is that fees or mining rewards will exceed the impermanent loss you suffer. In which case, the fees or rewards will be less because of impermanent loss. But you hope that you come out in the green. But so often, when Link moons or when ETH moons, that's really not the case. The impermanent loss can exceed your fees and rewards, and you can pull out less than what you had staked. So. So, our solution really gives the users a peace of mind that they will always be able to withdraw what they initially staked. And furthermore, they can keep their long positions on their tokens. And also, lastly, the profitability of their fees and of their mining rewards. When there's no IL in the equation, the fees and rewards are pure profit. So, we're seeing a lot of LPs kind of be sort of shocked by the sort of profits they're making now on our pools because they don't have to worry about this unexpected risk just eating into that income.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a perfect transition because what you just described basically is how an AMM works and that's exactly the the concept that I wanted to cover before we talk about the new banker and how it solves all these issues. I wanted to make sure that every one of our listeners really understands what an AMM is. Can you maybe explain how the concept of AMMs originated and why on blockchains we don't have, for example, order books like on centralized exchanges like Coinbase or something and why we have them and also the kind of the basic explanation of, of how they work.
1: Well, I want to challenge Mark to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are two major components to it and they're not necessarily related. So we can begin with the first one, which is just the way that order books actually function. This requires basically someone who is showing up on the exchange, and maybe they have something to sell. If we're talking about a centralized exchange in cryptocurrency, this could be something like like Binance. And maybe they have some Ethereum tokens that they want to sell for Bitcoin. It's the duty of someone in the middle to try and match that person with someone who's wishing to, to buy those Ethereum tokens from them. Mm-hmm. And, and for that purpose, right, you can't really have a marketplace like Binance Functioning where people you know, send each other messages organizing effectively OTC deals all the time. It would just be complete chaos and it would be very difficult to keep track of what the actual market price for anything is. And so centralized exchanges, they incentivize this external participant called a market maker who comes in in the middle and basically looks at all of the people that wanting to sell things and looks at all the people who are wanting to buy things and tries to match them up so that the exchange remains liquid. Mm -hmm. In some cases, these people are incentivized by the government or by the exchange itself. And so they will sometimes buy and sell these currencies at a loss and then receive a rebate either from the government or from the exchange. I don't think any governments are rebating market makers in cryptocurrency, but certainly on, on stock exchanges and commodities, they, they get a lot of government rebates for keeping those markets liquid. So that's one element of it, right? You, you have this system where there is someone in the middle who is actually controlling the, the flow of capital. In a sense, cryptocurrency is still a protest against having anyone with that level of power. So there are going to be situations, and this is a type of white-collar crime, where you can corrupt the market maker in order to drive the price to something in in a direction that you want. And this is, you know, a type of dysfunctional market, and it does happen. Mm-hmm. This is, um, you know, something that cryptocurrency can't really tolerate. And so an AMM is great because it completely removes that person in the middle and replaces them with a computer program, right a, a simple function that will make sure that everyone who wants to buy any resource from the blockchain knows exactly how much is going to cost them and exactly how much of that resource they're going to receive in return. And the opposite is also true if you're if you're trying to sell something, you know exactly what you're going to get. And so that level of transparency and trustlessness is much more aligned with, I think, the spirit of the the cryptocurrency movement and is one of the reasons why I, I think it's so interesting. The other thing that makes it really interesting is that you don't need anyone on the other side of that transaction. So in an order book system, if you want to place an order, you actually need to wait for someone to sell it to you. You know, if your listeners have been watching Twitter recently... They may have seen all of these images about people analyzing the order books, where you can actually see how many people are trying to sell something and how many people are trying to to buy something. Mm -hmm. With an AMM, you don't need that, right? Because there is no requirement to match people up. So the finality of the transaction is much better. You don't need anyone to help you facilitate the transaction. You don't need anyone to help you realize the value of what it is you're trying to do. And I think as well that that sense of autonomy In finance is another thing that's kind of central to to cryptocurrency and DeFi in general. So I think these are the the main reasons why AMMs have started to take over. And I think we can see just how important they are to the community by observing that the first exchanges on blockchains, actually, I think, and I may be slightly wrong here, but they were order book based. You know, Bancor, I don't think, was the first exchange, it was the first automatic exchange. Mm -hmm. There were order book ones that came before Bancor that I think have ultimately failed. And I remember
1: you... cool analogy, all that order book-based exchanges were kind of equivalent to taking like the yellow pages, right? And a lot of people, when the internet first started, they were like, Okay, well, the yellow pages will just digitize it, right? That will make sense in the internet world. So you saw like yellow pages... Dot com emerge right but no one really saw the sort of ability of crowdsourcing to make a sort of yelp equivalent right and i think when we saw order book based exchanges emerge on on crypto it was almost like we just taken the old world and sort of just ported it onto the blockchain yeah. right The it, sort of yellow pages.com of that Whereas the the AMM-based exchanges are sort of like the Yelp or the Wikipedia, where it's a whole new world to explore. And it's really sort of, you know, crowdsourced liquidity, you could say. Uh,
0: Yeah, I love that analogy. I think one of the reasons also that we have AMMs is the limitations... Of a blockchain, right? There's only a a set amount of transactions a blockchain can process every, you know, 15 seconds. In the case of of Ethereum, and for an order book, you basically need a lot of transactions because sell and, and buy orders need to be updated and matched all the time. And an AMM, as you said, basically guarantees that there's always liquidity. Like there's an automated market maker, so to say. The the funds are. In a pool, they're always there and any trader can just come and get a quote instantly and make make a trade happen. And now we're at the last concept that we need to cover before we go finally into Banker V2, which is impermanent loss. So liquidity providers can provide liquidity into these automated market maker pools and then they earn the trading fees generated by that Automated market maker, but you said there is a risk by doing that, and it's called impermanent loss. Do you want to like quickly explain how it works and and maybe give an example that makes it tangible?
1: Yeah, I think once again, Mark, I want you to take this. I've, I've heard your description before of uh, impermanent loss, and, and I tend to like it too. Do you want to? Do you want to take that? Yeah, my pleasure. So I think you know if we're speaking to DeFi spectators, right?
2: People that aren't totally familiar with the space. I think sometimes it helps to use an analogy that's you know that's closer to the real world. So if, if you don't mind, Emmanuel, I'd like to talk about something like, you know, potatoes or, or cherries or something like that.
0: Love it. <laughs> yeah.
2: So you can imagine that, you know, if you're at a like a farmer's market or something like that, and you know, you're you're selling potatoes and then at another part of the market, there's someone else selling exactly the same, you know, resource, right? Potatoes as well. And you both have different prices. But it's an unusual farmer's market because you aren't just going to sell your potatoes, but you will also buy potatoes. This is, you know, of course, it rarely happens in, in the real world. But for the sake of, of the discussion, we're going to pretend that, that that's something that can happen. So we're going to imagine now that a, a customer is walking around the farmer's market and they notice that there are potatoes being sold for $1 at one of the, the vendor's stalls but then they go to another vendor store and they see that the potatoes are being bought and sold for $2. So, you know, what is this market participant, you know, what, what are they incentivized to do? If they know that they can buy potatoes at $1 from one of those vendors and then sell it for $2 at the other vendor. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that eventually the person that is selling the cheap potatoes, his supply of potatoes is going to start running out and so supply and demand considerations would suggest that the, those price of the potatoes that he's selling cheaply will start to increase. And own the other vendor where he's selling them for a profit, because that vendor is buying them from the, the market participant, his supply is increasing and that's going to drop the price that he's asking for those potatoes. And so eventually, these two different vendors who are selling potatoes um, are going to reach some sort of equilibrium price. And that you know, means that the, the price of potatoes is going to be completely fair across the entire market. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that the person that was selling the potatoes cheaply has actually made a loss because he could have sold those potatoes like, directly to the other vendor, if you like, you know, in, in order to balance, the, um, yeah. to balance the market himself. But in AMMs, the vendors are computer programs. And they don't read each other's prices, right? For that, you need something like a a chain link price oracle or something like that. They are only aware of the the market situation inside themselves and they don't communicate with anything else. And so there is a market participant. We call these people arbitrageurs who take these opportunities, not because they are investing in potatoes, just because they can see that there is a quick dollar to be made and they will take it very aggressively, even if the profit margins are quite small. And so liquidity providers end up being these potato salesmen. And when the price of an asset is going volatile relative to another asset, they end up selling their tokens cheaply to an arbitrageur who then sells them at a profit on another exchange. And so you actually do end up losing money this way. And what's interesting is that if the market price reverses, then that arbitrageur will buy them back from the place that he sold them at and sell them back to you. And in that case, you actually end up recuperating some of your losses. And that's why it's got that word impermanent in front of it. But usually, you know, from our research, the, the word impermanent is extremely misleading. These are permanent losses. You very rarely get back to where you started. It is a, a risk that is always present. And it's very poorly understood by a lot of DeFi participants. And I would gamble... That if the Uniswap community knew just what the full extent of their losses are, they would probably refuse to provide liquidity there. And I think that that's the problem that Bancor identified with the whole AMM model and what led us to develop the risk free model that we're using today.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I, I just want to reiterate the sort of real world implications of this for a user. Let's go back to the Link ETH pool. If Link, Is mooning relative to ETH, the pool is selling off that link and buying ETH. So, you know, most token holders believe that their token or want their token to moon, yet, you know, providing them to a liquidity pool in order to support the token project to provide it with that on chain continuous liquidity, you're essentially entering into an agreement. To sell off the token just right when it's mooning, and so it's really led to AMMs. The original kind of promise was, you know, if you believe in a token project and you're holding its token and you're long on it, uh, you know, then you want to provide it with liquidity. But that's at odds with, you know, getting those gains as it moons. Yeah, and so this we we really felt that in order to really continue pushing this space forward and even operating an AMM-based DEX. This is really something we need to solve. And like Mark said, it's quite difficult and quite elusive for even the most brilliant you know, mathematicians and economists to understand, let alone you know, the DeFi user, because you're also seeing price action on your tokens. You might provide liquidity to an ETH and link pool and have both assets appreciate a lot. And then you pull it out and you're like, okay, I I think I got a gain. I don't have the best analytics into it, but both of the assets went up and I have more money. So they don't really realize that that's... They
0: could have had more if they had not provided liquidity. Exactly. Exactly.
1: If you just held them on their own 50-50, you would have ended up with more. And this is so part of the reason that it really kind of Bothers us sometimes to go to, say, a Uniswap or a Balancer and to see them advertise these APY figures, yeah. for instance, and to sort of lure LPs into that situation where that APY is really misleading because it's not taking into consideration the impermanent loss and this risk.
0: Uh, I think it's safe to say that probably not as many people would be liquidity providers in DeFi if A, there was no liquidity mining incentives for providing the liquidity. So sometimes, you know, the protocol rewards liquidity providers in their native token, and that makes up for the impermanent loss. Or B, sometimes people just don't understand exactly impermanent loss, and they just find it kind of appealing to just, you know, put in the tokens into the AMM pool and forget about it and have the AMM pool generate some swap fees and not making the, the whole calculation basically. But yeah, admittedly, it's it's one of the toughest nuts to crack basically this whole impermanent loss thing. And so you guys with Banker V2, I think it is, right? Not V3. V2.1. V2. V2. Yeah, V2.1. You guys are solving it. And so far, the success has been incredible. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it works?
1: Yeah, sure. So let's go back to the link pool. And remember, in Bancor, every pool has BNT. And effectively, what is happening is, let's say a user provides liquidity with link. Now, remember, we offer these two features, one single-sided liquidity and two impermanent loss protection. So with single-sided liquidity, You're exposed and providing just your link. You don't have to have any exposure to BNT if you don't want to. Whereas in other AMMs, you're either coming with your link and ETH, or you're providing link to the pool, and then the pool will automatically sell half of your link to the ETH. And then when you pull out, it'll sell it back into link. Mm-hmm. But with Bancor, you're coming just with link and you're maintaining that 100% exposure to link. And let's say I provide $100,000 worth of link to the link pool. What Bancor will do is it will actually invest its BNT into the other side of the pool. So it will take the other side of the pool. So I come with 100,000 worth of link. Bancor protocol invests 100,000 worth of BNT in the pool. And both provisions accrue fees while they're in the pool. So as a link provider, I'm making swap fees in link. And the Bancor protocol, having provided its BNT on the other side of the pool, is also accruing fees off of its co-invested BNT. And once a liquidity provider Pulls out of the pool, the contract is determining whether the liquidity provider has suffered any impermanent loss. Mm -hmm. And if they have, that impermanent loss is compensated by the fees that the protocol has generated from the BNT that it has invested. And if there are not enough fees for the protocol to compensate fully, in link the link provider might get some of those fees in bnt and if the protocol hasn't generated enough fees to cover that il then it can then mint new bnt to compensate that link liquidity provider for their il and it's important to note that when the protocol is co-investing its bnt that the bnt is burned when the link LP has withdrawn from the pool and the stake, the link liquidity provider provided is associated with that sort of co invested BNT. The co invested BNT is then burned. Or what can also happen is a BNT liquidity provider can come along and take over the protocol's position in the pool, in which case the protocol provided. BNT would be burned in that case, too.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It it sounds super interesting. Definitely got a couple of questions. So first of all, this concept of co-investment, that's completely new. So basically, you let users deposit just one token of the pool. You mentioned the example, link BNT pool. Users can just Deposit link and then you take the other side of the pool. So, if the user would deposit $1 million worth of link, you deposit $1 million worth of BNT tokens. So, basically, these BNT, where are they coming from? Is this from like the treasury or? Yeah, so the Banco doesn't have a treasury.
2: We have a dynamic, elastic token supply. So, at any one time, there is only ever exactly the number of BNT tokens that are needed. So, if you come in and supply link tokens, the protocol will actually produce more BNT in order to fund the other side of the pool. And so, even to DeFi veterans, this sounds like a catastrophic, you know, inflationary situation. But it actually isn't. And the reason is that you you have to remember that the tokens that are minted inside the pools, most of them can't be accessed. They're not in circulation in any Real sense. So, if we think about how the we haven't spoken about uh, the constant product yet, the idea is that as you are buying one of the assets from the pool, its price starts to appreciate hyperbolically. So, it's it goes up very very quickly. So, if we mint a million BNT into the link pool, someone might say, "Oh, but you know, what's the the dumping risk of that? You know, like that's going to surely dilute out the BNT holders and, and cause a price crash." But actually, it's quite the opposite, because the only way to get those BNTs is to buy them. And as you start buying them, it starts to increase their price. So there is no selling pressure. These tokens are minted at the exact value that they have at the time that the deposit was received. So they don't need to be sold to realize their value, which is in stark contrast to the usual minting mechanics that you see in, in other
0: projects. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So. Basically, you could do these co-investments as many times as you want. There's, uh, how is this uh, sort of regulated? Because I know that you have some sort of caps on each pool yeah. because I deposited some single-sided liquidity in, in, I think it was a BNT East pool. And then like two weeks later, I wanted to deposit some more, but I couldn't anymore because there was like some cap that was reached. I guess you want to somehow limit this for, for risk reasons. How is that determined how much of a co-investment in each pool you do? Yeah, yeah. So the, this
2: entirely comes down to a DAO decision. And you're right. It's entirely about risk management. There are highly trustworthy projects like Link and Ethereum, Wrapped Bitcoin, these kinds of projects that inspire enough trust that it would be so difficult to rug them at, at the moment, right? For some mega investor... Or some hacker to be able to generate a very large number of those tokens illegitimately. So, you know, the, you've we've seen these kinds of exploits happen just recently. We've seen it happen, I think, in cover twice now, maybe three times, paid just suffered this exploit. So, it, you know, it, on, on these kinds of pools, you know, we want to make sure that obviously the ones where these exploits have already occurred, we will never co-invest on those projects because it's too much of a security risk. But there are projects out there that, haven't been exploited yet, but for which that risk still exists. And so, you know, we do our best to make sure that we know the, the team and we read their contracts and the DAO reads the contracts mm-hmm. to see if these kinds of exploit opportunities exist. But when we can't find them, we don't say, okay, that's fine, you can have 100 million BNT and co-investment. We start small as like a test, you know, yeah. to, to limit the exposure to these kinds of smart bug issues while the project establishes itself but for the more established projects we can be very confident that something like this isn't going to occur and so minting large amounts of bnt to support liquidity in those pools doesn't necessarily have the same risks associated with it but even on the very large trustworthy pools like ethereum and and wrapped bitcoin we still don't want to increase we still don't want a very large amount of co-investment because you can end up stumbling into a situation where you have unproductive capital so, it's not the case necessarily that bigger, deeper pools are always better. There's going to be some level where the, the pool is at an optimum depth. And that's when the capital efficiency is the highest, the APY is the highest, is getting relatively low slippage and is attracting a lot of trade volume. But as you increase the pool depth, some of those performance metrics won't change. And we'll, all you will end up doing is diluting the revenue over a much broader user base. And so that's not helpful either. And so th- it's not just the risk part of it, it's also the exploit risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the financial risk. We want to make sure that the pools are highly productive. And that also means having to stop people from overcrowding them.
1: Yeah. You can think of the DAO as sort of like an insurance company that's evaluating different insured people and determining how much. Permanent loss insurance it wants to provide based on the you know certain metrics in the token like volume, market cap, and because that eventually determines how much fees are, are generated for the protocol. Now, keep in mind when a cap is reached, let's say the protocol can mint a million worth of BNT to support the single sided provision on the other side. Once that cap is reached, one of two things can happen the Dow can vote to increase the cap and provide more capacity for single-sided provisioning or BNT holders can come and provide BNT to the pool which opens up more space for the other side for you know single-sided provisioning on the other side and sort of take some of the burden off the protocol of providing the uh, the co-investment
0: and the B and T provisioning is that always impermanent loss free? So if if there's no more capacity in a certain pool, but I decide to provision on the B and T side of things, that is always insured, or is that Okay. Yes.
1: Yes. Okay. It's always protected against uh, yeah. impermanent loss. And now, uh, important caveat to note here is that impermanent loss, the insurance accrues over time. So in order to get full protection against impermanent loss, you have to be in the pool for at least 100 days. Now, the insurance starts to kick in after 30 days in the pool, at which point you'll get 30% insurance against impermanent loss. It increases by 1% each day. So after 50 days, you'll have 50% protection. And then after 100 days, any impermanent loss that has occurred In the first 100 days, or any time thereafter, is fully protected, 100% protected.
0: Okay, and there, the reason is just that you want to incentivize kind of long-term liquidity providers, and not just people who come for five days and then pull out. Yeah, not only. I mean,
2: it's it's definitely partially that, or at least that is like a a happy coincidence because it does mean that BNT has become quite dump resistant, which is Mm -hmm. nice. But no, it's not, it's not just to, to do that. It's actually mostly because, we, based on analysis of, of other AMMs leading up to the launch of V2.1, we noticed how volatile impermanent loss actually is. And so it's possible that over a very short time period, the impermanent loss can be quite large. And when it spikes in this dramatic way, it's generally because there has been a very sudden price movement. Usually on an illiquid exchange like Coinbase or something, that's caused a very large amount of arbitrage opportunity to become present, right? For these uh, these people to to buy something from you at a certain price and then sell it somewhere else for a profit. But over time, other market forces kind of come in and rebalance that situation. So after thirty days, it's really given the the deposit enough time to experience sufficient swap volume. That the DAO is confident that the fees earned on the pool are at least partially able to compensate the loss. So whereas if you deposit in one block, you could actually drive, you could manipulate the price in the pool as an attacker and then withdraw your stake in a you know from the protection contract. And okay. so these kinds of exploits exist when you get full protection immediately. But they go away, these risks completely go away after you force people to keep their stake over long periods of time okay. so there's you know there's security aspects to it there's economic aspects to it, and as you said there's the benefit of people being incentivized to stay for longer periods of time, and that keeps the TVL relatively stable Damn. so it 's a combination of these three
0: things and you mentioned the dump resistance i I saw this. First hand, I think it was last week or two weeks ago when the whole market dipped and I saw BNT almost didn't budge at all because now it's this reserve asset in a protocol that has almost like over $1.5 billion in TVL. So there's basically a lot of liquidity for BNT and it it takes a lot of dumping to to move the price basically. So Yeah, a lot more than I think any individual investor
2: holds. In order to move the price of $600 million worth of BNT, it requires a commensurate level of capital. And so, yeah, the the fact that BNT is so liquid, as you observe, it does protect us against these dramatic, volatile price swings to the downside, which is nice. Yeah.
0: Let's go back to the exact mechanism of how the impermanent loss is covered from a banker protocol perspective. So let's say, again, this linked BNT pool, and let's say after three months... LINK has appreciated a lot relative to to BNT, and let's assume the trading fees alone on the banker side haven't made up for the impermanent loss that needs to be paid out to the LINK liquidity provider. So where would this difference come from?
2: Yeah, so in that case, we still allow the, the protocol to mint additional BNTs to make up any difference there. And so that there, you know, this is one aspect of the inflationary pressure on the B and T supply. And you know, we we accept that. And it's meant that we've had to build in systems to sort of offset that inflation with other deflationary mechanisms. But I should point out that because it's always B and T that's being minted in order to compensate liquidity providers in situations like the one you've just described, you can still see. That if the fees elsewhere on the protocol are much higher right, and are, uh, have more than compensated for the impermanent loss experienced by liquidity providers on those other pools, mm-hmm. because it's all connected via the protocol, the excess burning that you get on highly performant pools offsets the minting that you get on the, the ones with more severe IL. So this, yeah. risk sh- this risk sharing, it works exactly the same way as any other insurance
0: works. Yeah. So it's netted across all the pools, basically. Correct. And,
1: And what we've seen, which is extremely encouraging, is that the compensation that we've been paying out for impermanent loss is far less than the fees that are being generated by the system. And again, those excess fees are protocol revenue. And we're in an interesting phase of DeFi where a lot of investors are really starting to look at specifically protocol revenue. I'm, I'm very excited that we're beyond a phase where folks are just looking at cumulative fees, right? Because your LPs might be making a lot of money, but what if your token holders are not making any money? For instance, in the case of Uniswap, LPs at times, if they don't get wrecked by impermanent loss, can generate quite a bit of fees but uni holders currently do not accrue any value and uniswap has said that they're going to turn on a protocol fee at some point potentially in in v3 but that is coming out of the pockets of lps so what happens when uni holders who don't necessarily provide any utility or not really a worker in the system start to Siphon some of the fees from LPs, and LPs are not only exposed to IL but have to hand over some of their fees to the token holders. And so you're in a situation where you know you see Uni generating zero percent of the cumulative revenue, so they have zero protocol revenue currently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sushi came along and developed a system where now the sushi holders get sixteen percent of the cumulative revenue. Goes to sushi holders and is out of the pockets of the LPs, the workers in the system. Now, with Bancor, you have a very high overlap between the workers and the owners of the protocol, BNT holders, right? Because roughly, or let's say 50% of the capital is being provided by the protocol, right? The BNT holders who are agreeing to co invest in pools and also. BNT holders who decide to provide liquidity, BNT liquidity, to a pool, IL protected, and, and generate those fees on their BNT. So the protocol is generating 50% of revenue already. So if you look at metrics based off of protocol revenue and you look at BNT value capture, it's really a whole different ballgame with Bancor. We found a way to generate fees for the protocol without upsetting the LPs, right? Because they're enjoying this uh, impermanent loss insurance and also the very high level of swap fees and rewards, we're able to accrue all this value to to BNT. So it really flips the tokenomics of a lot of the AMMs that people are accustomed to on,
0: on its head. So you're saying a token like Uni, for example, it doesn't accrue any, any cash flows. It's only a governance token. Whereas BNT does give holders some cash flows. How, how does that exactly work? Do BNT holders have to stake their tokens or like stake them into any of the trading pools themselves? Or do they somehow accrue automatically?
1: Yeah. So it accrues. If you think about it, each time again, uh, the protocol invests BNT, From those investments generates fees. From those fees might pay out a portion for the cost of impermanent loss. But those excess fees that we've been seeing are then burned for BNT. So they deflate the supply of BNT. So indirectly that is being accrued. Those cash flow are being accrued because, you know, any BNT holder is benefiting from that deflationary pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, the best situation as a BNT holder is if you also Provide your capital to a pool, your BNT to a pool, and generate additional yield off your idle BNT through against swap fees and also through BNT liquidity mining rewards.
0: Okay. Yeah. Would you say it's positive for the protocol also that the BNT price has risen so much over the past months? Does it help to kind of compensate impermanent loss? payouts, etc?
2: One of the things that I can tell you from a high level is that as the BNT price has been appreciating, the the protocol has effectively been selling those BNTs onto the market. So this is one of the counterintuitive things about an AMM like ours, is that due to price appreciation, the protocol has actually been dumping BNT, which is mind-blowing because, you know, as you've pointed out, we've just done like 18x price appreciation since November. But that whole time that the price has been rising, yeah, arbitrageurs have been have been buying it from the pools. And so those kind of end up in the circulating supply a little bit. But what's interesting is that when they're buying those BNTs, they're selling things like the USD stable coins, like Link, like Ethereum, you know, Engine Token, all of the, the wonderful tokens that we, we have on our exchange. So the protocol is actually now in a really great hedged position because it now owns a very significant capital investment in all of the tokens on the exchange. Mm-hmm. And so at the moment, we can afford to pay out ridiculous amounts of impermanent loss without having to mint a single BNT. There's just a, an overwhelming excess of these tokens that we can then use to pay out uh, liquidity providers when they decide to withdraw. But it also means that if every single liquidity provider on the token side withdrew their liquidity, we would still have multi-million dollar deep pools in, with the the tokens that the protocol now owns. So that's yeah. an interesting artifact, right? The, the protocol will now, has entered this position where it will continue in, in perpetuity, even if token providers decide to leave, which is yeah. a really great you know decentralized solution because now we've got a protocol that's not a user that doesn't control the assets that's forced to con- to provide liquidity to these projects forever i think that that's a really terrific outcome
1: mm-hmm. and and a cool byproduct of that that we've started to notice is that bnt starts to act sort of like an index token of its largest pools and start you know with link for instance as link sort of rises BNT set tends to sort of track those price growths. And and that goes for its the deepest pools on its network. So if you're sort of long on DeFi and and long on the tokens that have the deepest pools on Bancor, then the, the BNT's token really starts to sort of act like this kind of index token that is influenced by by its deepest pools.
0: hmm Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think also that's perfect to shift gear a little bit and look at the more, you know, strategic perspective. So we know, like you guys have been, you know, the first to to tackle this impermanent loss issue, but we also know that Uniswap is working on something which is probably going to, you know, tackle the same issue and it's commonly referred to as Uniswap v3. What do you expect of Uniswap v3 and how do you think it would affect Banker?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a a lot of unknowns. I would say this is one of the the kind of longest waits crypto has had in terms of uh, a protocol. I think they started talking about V3 sort of almost immediately after V2 Mm -hmm. was launched. When, When was that? That was like the middle, early last year. So this has been almost a kind of year that people have been... Waiting and you know, a year in crypto is you know 50 years. Well, yeah, it's quite a while, and so your guess is kind of as good as mine. Um, there's been some indication of L2, but I think the sort of L2 seeing that as sort of a silver bullet to solve all the issues, I think people are quickly realizing that it's not going to solve all the issues. There are a lot of sort of decentralization and usability issues involved in L2 technologies and especially making them interoperable with L1. So there has been an indication from the Uniswap team that the initial deployment of V3 would be functional on both or would uh, sort of gradual sort of starting on V1 and sort of shifting onto V2. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of unknowns. I still feel quite kind of very, very comfortable with the innovation Bancor has put forth. We created this primitive, and I think the sort of uh, will for the foreseeable future have a real leg up in terms of our innovative capabilities. The product that you see today is sort of six months behind where Mark and some of our researchers are already developing. So we will continue to, I think, really lead the industry uh, in, the, in, in that respect.
2: Yeah. So the, I've been asked this a couple of times, and you know, my, my answer is usually the same. I, I know exactly what Uniswap B3 should be. But I would rather not comment because if they haven't realized it themselves, I don't want to give them the idea. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that there are there are a couple of things that, that are, you know, pretty common knowledge. I think that the initial, you know, or I speculate that the initial vision for Uniswap B three could have just been Uniswap on Optimism. And, and there are a couple of good reasons to, to to think that this might be true. We know that the the venture capitalists that are backing Uniswap are also backing Optimism, and so they could have seen um, some product synergy there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that that would have allowed that to happen. But then I think Uniswap quickly realized, as we did, that launching on Layer Two isn't necessarily a good idea. It's not a bad idea, by the way. You know, we, we collaborate with with Arbitrum, and we're, we're very excited to to launch a, a product with them. But being first on layer two is kind of AMM suicide because there's not going to be a whole lot of activity up there at first. And it's it's the user experience is, is quite bad because you need to move funds from layer one to layer two and then you can do stuff up there, but eventually you need to kind of bring it back. So yeah, I, I speculate that whatever Uniswap v3 becomes, like whatever they launch with, it wasn't what was envisioned when they announced it. But you know, time will tell. I have some suspicions of of what Uniswap V3 is going to be, but uh, as I prefaced my, my comment with, I'd rather not share them in case they haven't, uh, in case those ideas haven't occurred to them yet.
1: Well, uh, this is kind of the risk of these like monolithic new versions, right? The world we're living in when the middle of last year, the end of last year, even last month is really rapidly different are dramatically different than the DeFi world we're we're living in now. So to create these sort of monolithic visions, I I think we sort of realize once V2.1 is out and then we have the DAO is you really need to take this sort of rapid iterative approach and things are constantly changing. We're constantly getting new ideas from our DAO, from our researchers, from economists that come into our sphere and, um, and the ability of Bancor to sort of rapidly d- deploy these new contracts and new uh, new designs, I think, is really key to building a sustainable moat in, yeah. in in DeFi. And I think you're already seeing, you know, there was this uh, uh, BDP, you know, situation where we were pretty shocked. I don't think it's been totally confirmed who the whale was, but you saw this like hundreds of millions withdrawn from like one inch and sushi within a day to yield farm on BDP. And those contracts like inflated to, let's say five to six million within a couple of days. And who knows what's going to happen once this sort of yield farming campaign there is complete. And that's why I think our sort of design is so key. Is it really the sort of yield hopping and the mercenary capital? It really disincentivizes that type Mm -hmm. of behavior and really rewards the sort of the long-term liquidity provision. And really, I think creates a lot of advocates and folks know that the longer you're staking on Bancor, we we haven't discussed this, but the mining rewards that you do get. You're rewarded even further if you then take those rewards and stake them single sided into the same or a different pool on Bancor. So it's really created a lot of stickiness. Uh, stickiness, exactly. And something we're pretty excited about. And I would probably advise you know any Uniswap you know builders or developers right now to probably look at at that as well because I think that's the way you sort of build a moat in the space.
0: Yeah. You said that Uniswap has this sort of like monolithic approach where they develop, you know, they were first at V one and then when they launched V two, it was sort of like a parallel new system and you know the liquidity was then stuck in V one and people had to, you know, migrate over. It's not just an update to the product like we're used to in traditional applications where a new feature is out, but as a user you don't have to do anything. Your your account stays the same. It's just the app that changes in Uniswap when they launch a new protocol, it's, it's a completely new architecture that users have to migrate to. And now v3 is probably going to be the same thing again. And so you're saying that banker, you're, you're taking a more iterative approach where you constantly listen to the community and, and to liquidity providers and adjust features here and there. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Listen, the ideal is immutability. I think that's what we're envisioning over the long term. But the reality of the situation today is these primitives are still so early stage. There's still so little we know about them. And to not have a decentralized organization that is capable of voting and, and upgrading certain elements of the contracts and managing risk in the protocol, I think we'd be putting ourselves at a, a pretty severe disadvantage and would not really allow us to serve users as the industry and mechanics of this space are are so rapidly evolving. Now, to whatever extent we can sort of major changes that, you know, with V2.1 those were brand new pools that users did have to provide new liquidity to and shift their liquidity into it, but we do feel that the, the immutability and the sort of static protocol, it is the long-term vision. But in the intermediate, we think that the benefit of having a DAO that can build features that are in in demand and respond to the market quickly is quite crucial to be as competitive and and, and really win in the space.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My follow-up question would have been like, who can make changes then to the banker protocol. Is it a sort of a multi-sig, the, the core team, or is it the community together with like sort of a DAO vote? Kind of depends what what the trust assumptions here are.
1: Yeah. So there is a multisig that is controlled by numerous parties within the DAO that respond to proposals that are passed to upgrade the protocol. We will be entering a phase at some point where the proposals will be automatically executed to upgrade the protocol and those proposals will be submitted by the DAO. But currently, there is uh, a uh, DAO-controlled multi-sig that makes those changes, Mm -hmm. like most of the DeFi
0: protocols. Well, that seems quite secure to me. I think, in general, I, I very much believe in this progressive decentralization playbook. And there's also an article about it where as long as a protocol tries to find product market fit it needs fast iteration and upgradability and once you have found that product market fit you can make the the contracts immutable i do think that it's a nice end goal to have immutability because as a user it just feels very you just feel very comfortable if you know nothing can be changed basically and it feels yeah like it's more hard to to exploit but yeah, totally see benefits in iterating a lot like you guys do. And it seems secure to me, but I'm also not, not an expert. That's why I'm asking all these questions to you guys. But one last big question to round this up. So would you agree that right now it seems to me that on banker, you have very deep liquidity on core trading pairs such as WBTC, some stable coins you know, the, the big assets that have a lot of trading volume because that's where you are willing to co-invest and take the risk. And so that's where liquidity providers are incentivized to to go in because you offer this unique feature that no one else is offering in, in the decentralized exchange space. But then where you're sort of less well-equipped, it's on the long-tail token side. So one of the reasons many people go to Uniswap as their sort of go-to interface is that whenever a new project launches, it, it's on Uniswap because it's just like the go-to place where where people launch their first pool. Is that sort of a strategic decision that you say, like, we want to be a liquidity provider for you know the core tokens, but we're less focused on the long-tail tokens? Or is this also an end goal where you want to get to and also offer liquidity for less well-known tokens? Not at all, right? We, we, we are
2: absolutely 100% committed to the long-tail. I think that because of the nature of the protocol and the, the risk aversion of, of BNT holders in its bootstrapping phases, it was necessary to go with the most reliable tokens and also the ones that are, you know, that have very significant volumes and, you know, a, a lot of brand recognition, you know, a, a lot of great communities, because we needed to grow very quickly in order to, you know, get a seat at the table. But I think it has never been the case. Like if you go back over any of Bancor's tweets or any of its documentation, it's never been said that we are only interested in the DeFi blue chips. This is something that I think has become something of a, a misapprehension by our community members due to the way that the protocol was bootstrapped, but it doesn't reflect any core value of, of the project at all. Mm-hmm. I think Nate probably would like to add to that.
1: Yeah, sure. Just to reiterate that, the long tail, the small tokens is literally in our DNA. You know, Let's go back to the founding of the project. We were a protocol for illiquid community currencies. We were literally building currencies for villages in Africa. Right. So the long tail is very much in our DNA. Now, look if you look at, okay, so uh, what are the implications of that? Well, co-investing as a, a protocol into these brand new DeFi hot tokens that are particularly volatile in their early phases is obviously an uh, impermanent loss risk for us. So we have a solution coming out that is super interesting and will effectively provide the same experience for a token project or a liquidity provider as they would get on Uniswap or Sushi Swap. And that is that they can provide both ETH and their token... So there's no sort of interaction with BNT. The ETH is protected or whatever token you want. It could be USDC or DAI or any token on the Bancor network. But the paired asset is protected against impermanent loss. Now, the token that you provide in the same way that Uniswap or SushiSwap, that, that sort of risk asset will not be protected against impermanent loss. But it provides that sort of same exact experience that you can launch a new pool with a commonly held or more commonly held asset like ETH or DAI or USDC. It's very cool that it will be protected against a permanent loss. Now, behind the scenes, what's going to be happening is that the paired asset in your pool will actually be opening up a single-sided protected position in the associated pool. So if it's ETH, then in the ETH pool on Bancor. And so BNT behind the scenes is still part of the equation, but from the user's perspective and from the liquidity provider's perspective, they'll be able to deploy these pools with Ether, Ether, any other asset and be protected from impermanent loss. And then gradually over time, as the pool achieves certain volume or revenue metrics, Mm -hmm. it'll get transitioned into this sort of coveted V2.1 status. And that will happen gradually such that the impermanent loss insurance on the risk asset side or the token side will be gradually increased as certain metrics are met, as well as the capacity for the single-sided provisioning. So we really are very excited to now that we've validated V2.1 for the mid and large cap you know tokens that the blue chips if you will to now expand it to these long tail new assets and really capture the the full sort of cycle of growth for these tokens and which will generate as you said a revenue for the protocol and a lot of attention and awareness if you know that the key place to buy these tokens and sell them is on Bancor so in the very near future we expect to see Bancor gems emerge, you know, similar to what we've seen happen with the so-called Uniswap gems.
0: Very cool. Just,
2: just FYI, like we've already been approached by a number of different projects that have expressed an interest in, in token launches with us. So it's kind of already happening. I, I think that after the we get the first few out, people will start to see Bangor as this really premium platform in order to do these token launches. Because it means that it's been vetted already by a community that has a lot to lose by listing bad assets. Whereas on Uniswap, it's still up to the, the rest of DeFi to sort of investigate and make up their mind beforehand. Do you know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. there's nothing at risk. So I, I think that it will be sort of an
0: especially bullish metric that some tokens are, have successfully launched on Bancor. But before they... Enroll into the impermanent loss insurance scheme. Are they also vetted by the DAO or does that only happen? So, can they launch kind of permissionlessly without the impermanent loss insurance? And then once they go into the Banker v2.1 scheme, then they are vetted. Yeah, of course they can. But, you know, the reality is if you're coming to
2: Bangkok, it, the reason is because you value impermanent loss insurance, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So it's the first question they always have for us and for the community: is you know, would you consider whitelisting this token so that we, you know ahead of time so that we can launch on your protocol? And the the community is usually you know like, what do we know about your token yet? You know, we don't know if it's going to be highly traded. We don't know if we can take this risk. But now that the the pools are quite deep. I think that we can take small risks with, you know, small amounts of initial liquidity. And it wouldn't, you know, even if it was exploited, it would have a, you know, a negligible effect on the overall ecosystem. So we're always aiming to not get exploited. We talk to the communities involved with these token projects quite frequently. And you know, we, we check their contracts to make sure that that these kinds of deliberate loopholes aren't built in in order to take advantage of our insurance. But yeah, I would expect that some of these whitelisted token launches to just start happening sometime in the, in the near future.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and just to, to be clear, the permissionless listing is possible now on Bancor v1. And also once this, uh, we're calling it uh, potentially launchpad or token onboarding will be live, it will be permissionless and there will be impermanent loss protection, but it'll just be on the paired asset side. So just on, say, the ETH side of the pool, whereas there will not be any IL protection on the risk asset side, let's say the hot new DeFi token side. So, you know, we we do see that as a sort of superior solution for these long tail assets uh, as compared to Sushi and and Uni.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And that's why I asked, since I also have like a couple of projects that I'm involved with or a part of the community i think is in, in permanent loss insurance thing is, is very attractive and so i was curious if, if you're also trying to include those into the insurance scheme yeah but, um, well, I, anyone can write a proposal
2: so if you if you would like you know you don't need to own bnt you know in order to propose tokens for whitelisting on our governance forum mm-hmm. you need to have quite a a lot of vbnt in order to launch it on chain for a vote but once your proposal is actually on the forum usually it will attract someone from within the community that has the voting strength to move it on chain for you so if there are a couple of you know projects that you would really like to see whitelisted by all means you know come into our channels i'm happy to to show you the ropes and maybe we can get your your tokens up for whitelisting consideration sometime soon
0: very cool well, listen, it was a really nice conversation. Also quite long, but there was a lot to cover.
1: And there's so much we didn't cover too. Yeah, uh.
0: yeah, exactly. I, I also had a lot of questions in my mind, but I kind of had this time constraint in mind. But yeah, I feel like it's, the new banker is really a rabbit hole where uh, there's so much to learn and it's super interesting. I'll definitely keep following your guys' progress. And yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. And and we really encourage folks who, who want to learn more to go check out our docs, docs.bancor.network. Check around, poke around the pools at bancor.network. And also join our Telegram or, or Discord servers. The Telegram channel is just bancort.me slash bancor or our liquidity providers channel. We have a pretty welcoming community. Anyone who wants to learn more, we're always... Down to answer questions and and brainstorm. Also, we're posting regular progress updates and and blog posts on blog.bancor.network. and and obviously our Twitter is is pretty active. We just have this new bot. It's at Bancor Vortex, and you can monitor when space as we spoke about space opens up in in these pools, and it's pretty coveted to get your liquidity in these pools. So it's a cool way to uh, to see when space opens up in a pool, and then. You know, quickly hop over to Bancor and provide liquidity.
0: Amazing! I'll join myself. Cool. Hey, it's me again. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please feel free to share it with your friends and family, or give us a follow on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you have some feedback, reach out to me. I'd love to hear it.